0: kingdom of God. That's our series. Last week we talked about establishing the kingdom. Today we're talking about explaining the kingdom. Jesus established the kingdom and he explained the kingdom. Um, You've already seated, so you can read this while you're in your seats. We're going to read out loud together Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 10. Let's read together. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. At the beginning of his public life and ministry, Jesus began to teach about the kingdom of God. At the end of his public life and ministry, he spent 40 days speaking to his disciples about the kingdom of God. Between the beginning and the end of his public life of ministry, he spoke about the kingdom of God. One of the significant moments starts right here in Matthew chapter 5. It's Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. The kingdom of God is central to, to this series, but it's not just about this series. It is what Jesus emphasized throughout his duration here on the earth. Every story he told, parable, was about the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of God is really important. The church and the kingdom of God are not the same thing. The church is inside the kingdom. And the church is called to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Paul said, be careful. He said, if I preach a gospel to you other than the gospel, then you need to reject it. There are a lot of gospels that are preached that are not necessarily the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus only preached the gospel of the kingdom. So that's the the life-changing message that he brought at the end of his public life and ministry Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says this, you can look at it on the screen after his suffering he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God so just before ascending back to the father he's he's resurrected he's alive, how amazing is that they were all astonished some filled with disbelief, but he did exactly what he said he would do. He was raised from the dead, showed himself, and then taught them about the kingdom of God. I thought about that this week, 40 days. If on average they were together three hours a day, probably more, but if they were only together three hours of the day for 40 days, that's 120 hours. That's a four-year degree. That's a four-year degree. And they probably had more than three hours a day together. He was getting them immersed into the kingdom. And their post-resurrection understanding of the kingdom was greater than his, 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 their understanding of the kingdom before he died. Because he kept saying he was going to rise, but they didn't understand it. So... He taught them that for 40 days, and that doesn't include the three and a half years that they were together before this moment. So you want to talk about a live practicum, three and a half years with him living the kingdom of God. Jesus showed up, and he is the king. He said, I'm here, my kingdom is here, here's how you respond to me in the kingdom. Change your mind. Repent, a radical shift in your way of thinking. Which leads then to a radical shift in your way of living. And Matthew chapter 5 is the record of what some scholars come, call almost the manifesto on the kingdom of God. Prior to this moment in his early months of ministry, I was thinking about this as we were singing the song. Uh, lives changed. Uh, help me, worship team. Lives, lives healed, hope found. Jesus, you changed everything. Literally, he would go from village to village, town to town, place to place, through all the cities. And everywhere he went, the king was there. The kingdom of God is present. By the kingdom of God, we mean his rule, his authority. So when he was present, people experienced healing. They experienced forgiveness. They experienced peace. They experienced their lives being changed. Marriages that were over were put back together. Families that were destroyed were renewed. Kids, teenagers who run away from home came back. Dead people were brought back to life. In the middle of the funeral service, he said, stop. Get up out the coffin. There's no way anybody does that and you're not impacted. So that by the time we get to chapter 5, people come from everywhere to be with Jesus because there's nobody like him. It's not that no one has said what he said. There's nobody who's living what he's saying except him. And so when we get to Matthew chapter 5 and he goes up on the mountain, it's important to understand some of the backdrop to the Sermon on the Mount and the history behind this moment. He opens up in verse 3 saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is so important when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You might say, blessed are those who are humble in spirit. The kingdom is theirs. The kingdom of God is there. The kingdom of heaven is there. This is very important. He's making a few points here. Number one, the kingdom now belongs to those who are humble. Prior to this moment, it was thought that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God belonged to only a chosen select few. One nation, the nation of Israel. He's saying it's not just to Israel anymore. It's to those who are humble in spirit. In other words, to receive the kingdom, you have to come with humility to the king. You can't get in without humility. Secondly, God, who made a covenant with Abraham and Sarah, saying, I'll make you into a great and powerful people. That people, we talked last week a little bit about covenants, and I said, you might want to read that. There's some significant covenants in the Old Testament. Covenant is a bond, uh, a, a, a bond of life and love and loyalty and commitment that's inseparable except by death. In the Old Testament, literally what they would do if two individuals were entering into a covenant, this bond of loyalty, this bond of, of love, and in, in some commitment that each had to perform some aspect, they would take animals, they would cut those animals in half, they would actually pass between the animals, and at the other side, they'd look back and say, may what was done to these animals be done to me if I don't honor my Commitment to this. It was a commitment to death. So, God, in making Himself known to us, steps into our context and takes what is very familiar to us to explain the kingdom, which is very unfamiliar. So, in the Old Testament, He made a covenant with Noah. Noah, as we know, was the person who God said among those living. He's the most righteous. Now, remember, the most righteous is still short of God's standard. It's relative righteousness. And Noah was the most righteous, he and his wife. And so God said, build an ark. And the reason for building the ark is because God said something. Think about where God has to be or where man has to be for God to say this. I'm sorry I made man. Because his heart, the inclination of his heart, is only evil from his youth on the way up. What's wrong with the world? Our hearts. The inclination of our heart is evil from our youth on the way up. You say, but I'm a good person. Yes, relatively speaking. Only relatively speaking. But the goodness of God... If the full measure of his goodness came into this room, we would all drop dead. Because the goodness of God that is him is not in us. And that's why I am so grateful that he is a merciful God. Because there's no other way to approach him. The Bible says, come to the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4. Come to the throne of grace that you might receive mercy. I need mercy every day of my life. I actually need his mercy every minute of the day. Even on the day that I think is the best day of my life, where I think I don't think I could live any better than this, on that day, I need just as much mercy from God as I do on the worst day I live. This is our God. So you have... This covenant he made with Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to make you into a great people. And the goal was through this people, the kingdom of God is going to be exported. It's understanding of it, the way of living to all the nations of the earth. Um, But the people, the nation of Israel did not keep or live up to the covenant. However, they believed that the kingdom was theirs through inheritance. In other words, because Abraham and Sarah are our great, 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 great grandparents, We inherit it. in the same way as if you are the son or daughter of some person who has some means or maybe not some means, basically their inheritance, when they go on to this life, it usually is left to you and it comes on down the line. Salvation can't be inherited through natural birth, only through spiritual birth. So just because I'm a pastor, my great, 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 great grandkids don't automatically get a pass into the kingdom of God. They got to get in the same way every human being gets in. Through the mercy of God. Uh, Another point here, and Jesus made this point, Galatians 3.29. He says, if you belong to Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is important because he was saying... It's not if you're a son of Abraham, it's if you belong to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew, you become an heir of the same promise made to Abraham. Historically, I want you to hear this. The Jews believed the kingdom belonged to them only. It just belonged to them first. Given 10 words to live by, they couldn't do it to save their lives. No one can. Israel is the first to learn how impossible it is for man to be right in God's eyes via his own righteousness. What's he saying here? Basically, our righteousness is not good enough to save us. Uh, Okay, okay, righteousness. I mean, how many? How many are doing the best you can to follow God? How many look at your righteousness and go, you know, it's okay. My righteousness is okay. How many say, you know, it's? How many say it's not where it needs to be, but it's okay. Come on, how many say my righteousness is okay? Raise your hand. Y'all are scared. They're like, I don't even know. I don't know if my righteousness is okay or not. I want to show you a video that you've probably seen at home, a commercial. And uh, it's about how okay is not okay. (laughs) Would you run that? Tell him we're flexible. Don't worry. My Dutch is okay. Just okay. Mm-hmm. Deze man is erg super. Tell him we need this merger, and they heeft ongenoefen nodig. It's happening. Just okay is not okay. <laughs> you get it? Just okay is not okay. When God reveals himself to Abraham and Sarah. We'll talk about this later, not today. But they actually inherit righteousness, God's righteousness by faith. And they're not trusting in their own righteousness as being okay. But their descendants get to the point, as you come down through Moses, Moses went up on the Mount of Sinai and he received... Ten words to live by. God said, Moses, I'm going to make a covenant with you for all my people. That if they would live by these ten words, here's what I'm going to do for them. This is my end of the covenant. But for the people, their end of the covenant is to keep my laws. And so there were ten words to live by. One of those ten words, honor your father and mother. This is a commandment. It's the first commandment of the covenant with a promise that if you honor your father and you honor your mother, it will go well with you all the days of your life. Another commandment, part of that covenant that God made was, do not murder. Another one was, somebody want to know? Anybody got a clue? Give me one of the other commandments of the covenant. Do not covet. In other words, don't desire that which is not yours. Coveting is strong desire for something that belongs to someone else. Their spouse, their house, their car, their shoes. Another part of the covenant. Don't bear false witness. Don't lie. Don't lie against somebody. Don't slander them. No libel. Anything else? No other gods before me idolatry idolatry is not some statue Idolatry is anything that you Take into your hand and have more affection more desire. It has more passion and more priority over God When it becomes first and God is no longer even though you thank him for giving it to you So a good thing can become an idol your spouse can become an idol if they come before God. Your job can become an idol if it becomes before God. Anything good can become an idol. It's when it now is in front of your face and God's on the other side of it. It's come between you and God. And he says, I won't have any other. Th-. What he's saying is, I'll have nothing between me and you. If there's anything between me and you, that thing is an idol. So something that's not an idol becomes an idol when it becomes first in your life. That's the issue with the rich young ruler. Jesus says, he runs to Jesus, what can I do to inherit eternal life? He says, what are the commandments? He says, all the things we just said. And he he said, Jesus, I've done all this since I was a youth. He said, one thing you still lack. What do I lack? He was very wealthy. He said, go sell everything you have, everything you have. Just imagine today if you had to go sell everything you have. Some of you think, I ain't got nothing anyway. But but just think if you had to sell everything you had today. And then go follow Jesus. How many say that'd be challenging? So, this is the cost. This is the covenant. He's like, nothing. He told him go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. I don't want your money. Give it to the poor. Then come follow me. Says his face fell. His countenance. He was like... I thought he was going to tell me <laughs> this or that. or We've already figured out what we want God to tell us that we have to do in order to follow him. Amen. Why did it hurt him? Because his wealth was an idol in his life. He wasn't prepared to make God first. So he went away sad and lost all his wealth that he could have given away. Whatever God's given you, you can't keep it. I mean, you're There's no U-Haul following the hearse. (laughs) We can't can't take it with us. And most of it wears out before we do. Those shoes you got, they're nice. You'll buy another pair. Those won't last you. It's all going to wear out. Be careful what your heart sets on. It's hard to let it go. So set your heart on God. Here's some action items I'm going to give you now. Number one, become teachable to the point of a radical shift in your thinking. We need to become so teachable, not just that we're learning, but to the point of a radical shift in our thinking. This is what Jesus is after. Number two, we need to read every parable and explanation given by Jesus. So wherever he says the kingdom of God is like this, we need to read all those in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We need to read all those, and then we need to ask for understanding. Pray for a heart that understands his words. Some of the parables or illustrations, he gives the meaning of it. Uh, Next action. Pray for a heart that puts the life of the kingdom into practice. Like every good thing, it takes practice. My trainer is in the room. And when we started it was the hardest thing in my life But he worked with me until I could begin to put the things he was teaching me in practice I had to learn the form I had to learn he started with small weights See and it's amazing if my trainer can do that how much more God he'll give you time to grow He will not ask you to come into his gym and then bench a thousand pounds on the first day But when he's done with you, you'll be benching five thousand Okay Uh, lastly be unsatisfied with okay when it comes to the kingdom. Just okay is not okay. Saying my righteousness okay is not enough. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, we're going to continue this series. So, you know, we'll, we'll cover what we can. When Jesus went up on the mount and he began to teach this, this, most of the people knew the Ten Commandments. And the disciples in that moment were probably shocked because Jesus said something that was shocking. And I want to read it to you. Um, In, first I'll read this, in the Sermon on the Mount, he describes the life of the kingdom of God. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about something that is absolutely counterculture. It was counterculture then when he said it, it's still counterculture today. The kingdom of God is counterculture to everything we know and think counterculture. And Jesus actually, when he describes the kingdom, he'll compare it to religious people. He'll compare it to pagans. Like the kingdom is just different. It's not like the kingdom is religious. He just says the kingdom is different than anything you know. So he describes the kingdom. And as he explains the kingdom, he makes clear that the righteousness practiced by the teachers of the law, held by all to be the standard, was not cutting it. The people of that era, not unlike our day, failed to achieve God's righteous way of living. No doubt this came as a shock to all of the disciples. So I put this point. We are not as right as we think we are. Here's what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. So remember, they know the Ten Commandments. They're doing their best to live up to it. But they're, it's, they're, they're basically like they're Dutch. Their they're righteousness is as good as that man's Dutch. So, in the video, if that didn't appear on the screen, on the podcast, like, what's he talking about? ATT commercial. You'll see it later. Um, here's what he says. This is Jesus, Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, you realize what he did? He just came in and you thought the bar was here, and it's here. He says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the ones who were holding up the standard, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. How shocking is that to realize my good enough is not good enough? You're saying that the teachers of the law, the scribes, everything they're laying out, unless my righteousness surpasses, exceeds there, I don't get to enter the kingdom of heaven? Right. Isn't that deep? Just as that generation thought they understood the kingdom and believed the kingdom was theirs, we can make the same mistake. We don't have time to read all this, but you should look up Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, uh, The New American Religion by Dr. R. Albert Muller, Jr. I'm going to read some of this anyway. When Christian Smith and his fellow researchers with the National Study of Youth and Religion at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, took a close look at the religious beliefs held by American teenagers, they found that the faith held held and described by most adolescents came down to something the researchers identified as moralistic therapeutic deism. As described by Smith and his team, moralistic therapeutic deism consists of beliefs like these. There's five. One. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Five, good people go to heaven when they die. That, in sum, is the creed to which most or to which much adolescent faith can be reduced. After conducting more than 3,000 interviews with American adolescents, the researchers reported that when it came to the most crucial questions of faith and beliefs, many adolescents responded with a shrug and whatever. As a matter of fact, the researchers who report whose report is summarized in Soul Searching, you can read that, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Eyes of American Teenagers by Christian Smith with Melinda Lundquist Denton found that American teenagers are incredibly inarticulate about their religious beliefs. And most are virtually unable to offer any serious theological understanding. As Smith reports... Quote, to the extent that the teens we interviewed did manage to articulate what they understood and believed religiously, it became clear that most religious teenagers either do not really comprehend what their own religious traditions say they are supposed to believe, or they do not understand it and simply do not care to believe it. Either way, it is apparent that most religiously affiliated U.S. teens are not particularly interested in espousing and upholding the beliefs of their faith traditions or that their communities of faith are failing in attempts to educate their youth or both. As the research has explained, for most teens, nobody has to do anything in life, including anything to do with religion. Whatever is just fine, if that's what a person wants. Now, the reality, this is not just teenagers. American culture today has exchanged the kingdom of God for moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's moral, moral relativism. What's right for me might not be right for you. I was born at the end of the moment where people believed there were absolutes. But that day now, in scientific studies, like there are no more absolutes. At least there's an argument that is made for that. There is a whole side that argues against it. And so, once you reduce even worship and serving God and how we live down to moral relativism, it's basically what I feel and what I think. But if it comes down to what I feel and what I think, then what Jesus says is no longer significant. Because I can choose to agree or agree with it being right. But Jesus, unlike any prophet who came before him, said, I am him. And here is my righteous standard, and if you don't measure up to this standard, there is no eternal life with me, and there's no, there's no entering into my kingdom." Now the thing about it was, he wasn't harsh in his presentation. He spoke the truth in love. So people heard the truth, but they also experienced his love. When John the Baptist was preaching, he kept saying, "'Woe to you! Judgment is coming!' People are like, "'Baptize me right now!' Yeah please. But when Jesus comes, he's fulfilling Isaiah, which says that when he comes, he will declare the year of the Lord's favor and the day of judgment. Judgment, one day, favor, a year. It's not intended to be 365 days. It's intended to express God's heart, that he favor, his favor goes ahead of his judgment. We're living in the period of the favor of God. So judgment is suspended. But if you're living in the, 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 the year or the season or the era of the favor of God, and because we don't experience judgment, we deceive ourselves and think we're okay. But when he comes as the lion, not the lamb, to judge, we will hear the roar of the righteous one who will say it is not Me who has rejected you, it is you who've rejected me. It is you who've rejected my righteous standards for life. So this puts the fear of God in us. Reverence for God, a holy awe. Does that make sense? So, um, J. Rodman Williams, theologian, wrote Renewal Theology. He says, in the first words of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus described this higher righteousness in one piercing statement after another. So he's sitting with the disciples on a mountain, giving them the truth. And here's what he says. No anger with a brother. No lust. No swearing. No resistance of evil. Love your enemies. Pray in secret, forgive others their sins, and on and on and on. It is clearly a righteousness of the heart, truly an impossible righteousness for sinful human beings. But without it, there is no entrance into the kingdom of God. This is what brings us to our knees. We just had an outreach at the University of Maryland called God's Not Dead with our very own Dr. Rice Brooks. And he brought with him his guest, Dr. Michael Gillum. And Dr. Michael Gillum, I had a chance to speak with him. He has three PhDs. Mathematics, physics, and astronomy. Yeah, right? He basically said 24 hours in a day, and he was angry that he had to, not angry, he was upset that he had to go to sleep for three hours. He locked himself in lab and came out with three three, three PhDs. He he, He said, it wasn't that I was just an atheist. He said, science was my God. He said, but there was another scientist whose name I can't pronounce, Russian. I, I need time to work on it, so I don't want to butcher it here. But that guy and his discovery was during the time, and some of you who are scientists or lovers of this will know, when he wrote a book, he wrote a book like God Doesn't Exist, and then that guy, not Dr. Gillum, but the guy he admired, wrote 40 books about um, atheism and God not existing. But his last book before he died was a redo of the first book, but he drew a line through saying, God, it God does exist. And the reason why this atheist came to that point because it was the discovery of DNA. And he said, there's no way you can look at DNA and think that this was somehow incidental or accidental. This is the imprint of intelligence that is far beyond us. Dr. Gillen said that got him. So he began to search for God. So he, he said, Buddhism, he went through all these things he looked at. He said, Buddha was logical. This he had, but he said, when I came to Christ, Christ was different because he was translogical. Here's what he means by that. He says, as a scientist, it appealed to me, he says, because light is a particle, but it is also a wave, but they're opposites. How can they both be this, but they're opposites? He said, Jesus seemed to be that way, taking opposites, but they work together. He said, for example, Jesus started saying things like, if someone hits you on the cheek, give them the other one. See, that's not logical. <laughs> Our human innate response doesn't give the other cheek. We might walk away. <laughs> we might walk away and say, you know what? I'm just going to walk away right now. I'm just walk away right now. That, that would be our highest and best. <laughs> but the kingdom goes, if you walk away, you don't enter into the kingdom. The kingdom says, give them your other cheek. Anybody feeling short today? We need to pray, y'all. I'm going to teach on the kingdom because this is, we've done church a long time. But Jesus didn't preach church. He preached the kingdom. And the kingdom is everywhere. The kingdom is in your office place. The kingdom is your next door neighbor. The kingdom isn't, oh, Sunday morning, let's go worship. We are citizens of the kingdom, but the kingdom is out there. And every place Jesus showed up, kingdom things were happening. He's, he, so He said, Dr. Gillum said, he said, if they ask for your shirt, give them your coat. Give them your coat. Anybody other than me go, this is a struggle. Why is it a struggle for us? Because until there's a radical shift in our way of thinking by a direct encounter with the king and the kingdom, not just to enter the kingdom, but to learn how to practice to live this way. Like I told you, my trainer, my first day, I'm like, I don't know if I can, I don't know. Went home to Marianne. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. That dude is hurting me. <laughs> I tried to tell him. I am, at that time, 49, 50. But he trains 17, 18, 19, 20, 20 year old D1, University of Maryland, basketball athletes. Do you know, do you know what kind of workout they do? So he trains them and then trains them like, do, do, do. I'm not them. He's like, I got you. And there were times at the end of my workout where I literally could not get up off the floor. I had my wife on speed dial. Come get me. I thought you rode your bike. I won't right now. I can't even get up. Thank you, Tucker. Tucker, stand up so everybody can see this guy who punished me and... But with his help, I dunked at 51. uh, Not right now. (laughs) I need Tucker in my life again. You'd be surprised if God trained you what you'd be dunking in life. See, Jesus said, You heard it said, the covenant made on Sinai. You know what Moses said in that moment when God formed the covenant? He said, God, please, I beg you, don't leave us. And you keep telling me to go, but you haven't said who's going to lead us. If you don't go with us, I don't want to go. I'd rather stay here in the wilderness, I'd rather stay here wandering. Then go into a place of milk and honey and blessing. If you're not going to be there, then I don't want it. Oh, that we would think that way. Some of us would take the houses and the cars and the promotion without him. Moses said, I'd rather stay in the desert than have that if you're not with it. And he said this. He says, what else on earth will differentiate us from any other people except your presence? Like that's real for me. There's nothing different than me and a heathen. I'm telling you what I believe. I don't think there's any difference between me and somebody who we would view on the street as kind of go. that dude needs God. There's no difference between us. Now that's real when you get there. There's no difference between us. It's just which one of us does the presence of God come on? And he comes on both, but which one will beg him to stay? Not just with their words, but living in such a way, you see me out here, I want you. You see, because when he says, don't murder, most of them are like, well, that's good. I haven't murdered anybody. But Jesus said, no, no, no. If you are angry with another man, you've committed murder. That's my standard. Any murders in the room? Have you ever been angry with a a man or a woman who loves God? Raise your hand if you have. That's murder by his standard. See, just okay is not okay. You might as well have bad Dutch. (laughs) How many of you men? How many of you women? You know, if a man or a woman commits adultery, go like, oh, wow, how'd you step out on your spouse? You stepped out. He says, lust in your heart is stepping out. If you lust after a person, you've committed adultery. How is that possible? Because you're breaking covenant with God and his spirit, who he made to dwell in you, So even before you act against your spouse, you had to act against the Holy Spirit. You're like, Pastor, please stop. I don't want to hear more. No, no, no. We need to hear it all. Because only when we hear it all will I'll cry to him, be really genuine. I'm going to use myself as an example, and maybe you can relate. And we've gone over, so if you need to leave, leave. Go get your babies. Bring them back in here. We're 14 minutes over by this clock. What's your greatest sin? Is it getting drunk? What do you feel is your greatest sin? Is it, is it, is it getting high? Is it cussing people out? What's your greatest sin? When I was 19, um, i could say my, my greatest sin I would have said at that time was sexual immorality. Um, didn't treat women right. Because I didn't think about them the way God does. So I struggle with what is common sin among people. You know the story at 17. Young lady, I got her pregnant and then abandoned her and our son. The rest of the story, for those who don't know, is that my son was miraculously restored and grew up raised by my wife and I, although I never married his mom. And I had a chance to repent to his mom and repent to her family. And God did a miracle. But after getting her pregnant, after after that, then I went to American University and I flunked out. I used to say I never missed a party. Maybe you were like me. Loved to dance shut the party down. I'm a kid of the 80s, so Crockett tubs. I used to wear baggy stuff and just like, <laughs> thought I was nice with it. <laughs> and you know, you hit that moment where it's like, and, and by the way, I was a Christian. Did I say that? Like to, I was dancing to Purple Rain Prince, and I was a Christian. Moralistic, therapeutic deism leave the club, I'm a Christian, I believe in God. School, involved with young ladies, car accidents, crazy stuff, man. Kicked out of school. So when God saved me, I knew that had to change in my life and I said, change me. Now as men, one of the things we talk about in women's too is boundaries. Your heart, God renews and so purity is what happens in the heart. Holiness is the conduct. And so I started practicing the conduct before my heart caught up to it. So there were external boundaries that I put in my life. Um, my first time meeting Mary in public, that we words were exchanged. We'd seen each other at a social or something. We were all in the same church. We weren't married. We were single. We are 20 by this time, 21. And she sat beside me on a row like this, somewhere in there. And she said, hi. She was just being friendly. Hey, how are you? Very pleasant. I stood up and I walked away. <laughs> I didn't even greet her. I didn't even greet her. I know she thought, that dude is weird. But but you gotta understand, see, I have been over here, and so I'm trying to compensate. If I say hello, I know where it's going. So so I started, I created rules. I'm not going to be alone with a woman. It'd be raining after church. Hey, Don, you need a ride? I'm good. It's raining. I'm good. <laughs> I'm not getting in that car, because if I get in that car, I don't know where I'm going to go with you. I didn't trust myself. I was so afraid of how I had lived that I was like, this is going to happen, right? So I just thought, that. Does. And so, so for years and years, you know, blocks on TV, checking into a hotel, disconnect the adult channel to my room. I, some guys know this story. like, Yeah, but you're alone, sir. Yes, I'm here doing a wedding for a member in our church, and I'm going to be tired when I get back. Can you just turn that off? Like, but you're by yourself. I don't understand. You don't have any kids with you. Okay, let me help you understand something. The adult channel plays stuff that destroys men's and women's lives, It destroys marriage. She's like, okay, okay, okay. No, you're going here. You want to know now? I I just told you to turn it off, but since you want to know, I'm trying to stay faithful to my wife. I don't need the magazines and the checkout stand. None of that's helping me love God or my wife. Turn it off. Yeah. I'm sorry, sir. We'll turn it off. Okay. <laughs> I didn't yell at her. But you go, you do a wedding. You're a human being. I, they kiss and everything. And my wife is home. She's not at this. is an away wedding. I'm like, I go back to my room. And I wish my wife were here. You're all tired. So when I flip through the channels, I want to make sure when I'm, when I'm going through the channels that my eyes don't fall on something that I'm too weak in the moment to change the channel. Yeah. And so over the years, I've walked close with men and I said, and we ask each other weekly, how are you doing? And sometimes we're doing well, sometimes we're not doing well. But we repent and we deal with it at, the, at, at a certain level before it goes to where it could go. But Pastor D, you're a pastor. I don't trust my heart. The flesh is weak and it always will be. So for 30 years, I've tried to put boundaries in place and also try to work on purity in the heart. And I do better at times than at other times. But I walk close with some men who will hem me up. Pastor Brett loves me too much. But you get to the point, and the men I walk with, in this church, we love each other enough that we, if something goes down, we're going to circle the wagons. We're not going to let you go out like that. You know what's amazing? There are things that happen you would never know about because God restores. It's not that it happened. It's that it wasn't the end of them because God said, I'm in this. And then the change that happens produces something that usually never happens again because it brings you to a place of, oh my God. And so where I used to think my greatest sin was sexual immorality, and I got it honest, my dad... My grandfather, my grandmother had 12 kids and didn't marry any of those men. So in my line, I don't struggle with getting high. I've never smoked, but immorality. That's why you can't think you are better than someone. It's just your, it, it, we, it. why are you getting drunk? Well, what is your deal? <laughs> don't act like you're not human. You have a deal. Just do you even know what comes down your generational line so you can be a stopgap? I'm trying to be the best stopgap so that my kids and grandkids won't have to fight this battle as hard as I've had to. My dad wasn't in the home, so I didn't see what it looked like for a man to love a wife. So i like, Marianne. bear with me. I'm learning, this, I'm learning this as we go. All you wives who are married, like, why won't? He probably learn? it's on the job training. <laughs> They think we come, you know, battery so separate, man. It just, it takes a minute. My girl's like, Daddy, I want to marry a man like you. Baby. I love that you said that, but I want you to know, at 21, I'm just saying, I know what I was like. Let them grow with you. Grow with her. Stop expecting everybody to have arrived when you haven't. we need to go back to when they had church all day long, right? It just, forget all the sports events, but let them play out in the hall. We just, but this is where I got to end it. My greatest sin is not sexual immorality. I journal, This is writing. that's like, Lord, my greatest sin is choosing me Over you my greatest sin is not sexual immorality my great your greatest sin is not alcoholism your greatest sin is not whatever you think it is it's choosing self over him choosing our will over his will because once you make that choice all bets are off that's why if you choose you over him Even if you never cuss, never do this, never, even if you're like the rich young ruler, I bet you there's some idolatry in there that you don't even see. But the moment he says, let that go, you'll be like, oh, so that's my thing. Like Jesus is the man, dog. He's on the cross. And these dudes are saying he saved others. Why can't he save himself and prove he's the Messiah? You know why? He didn't save himself because he chose God's will over his own. He chose the Father over himself and he said instead of saving myself and rebooting this thing like I did with Noah, I'm going to save y'all. And to save y'all, I got to go out like this. I'm like, I want to become the kind of man who chooses God over Donnell regularly so that I serve her right there are times between me and Marianna and I choose me but when I choose me it's because I chose me over him and once you make that choice it's easy to choose me over her because he's God I just can't imagine Jesus in the garden praying with such intensity in anguish If it's possible, let this thing go. Have you struggled with your sin to the point where you realize you're not really struggling with the sin? You're struggling with whether you're going to let go of self and choose him or if you're going to choose you. At the end of the day, it's just a choice. And I need mercy to make the right choice. Because game day is every day. Because when I choose him, then he empowers me to not be angry with my brother lust after someone to not covet what they have but you can't do any of that until you let the king regularly 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 by spirit come into your heart anybody struggling with trying to do this kingdom life let's struggle together let's figure this thing out let's live to a level where we say, our righteousness is not okay so we need his righteousness but there should be a difference between how we in the church are living and those outside the church. They ought to see us loving each other enough to kind of go, that's real. Sorry for keeping you so long. If there's anybody here in this room and you go, okay, I get it. So now I want to get it. Like I get a little bit today of what the kingdom is about and i want to enter the kingdom starting today just stand up you're already a, you, this is if you're not a believer you're not a follower you don't have a relationship with him you but you want to start that relationship today just stand up okay so for those of us who are following him how many are willing to say my following is not at the level of being the follower that he wants because my righteousness is not okay. I need, I need to come to another place, which means I need more of him in me. If if you if that anything like that resonates with you. Yeah. Yeah. Dad, it's probably most of us in this room. let just pray. We I just love that you sat down on a mountain and you just broke it down. And we realized. We can't do that. That's impossible. And you go, yeah, with you it's impossible, but with me, all things are possible. I pray that you would cause this church to begin to live the kingdom because we begin to think the kingdom. We don't want to be those who get hit on the cheek and just like, well, I walked away. We want to get to the point where we give the other cheek like you there's something on the other side of that where you give power and strength and we're like there's no way i could do that god strengthened me to give up my other cheek god strengthened me to give not only my shirt but my coat god strengthened me to choose him over me that's where we just want to start with the basic choosing you over me today choosing you over the culture choosing you over the pace of life choosing you over anxiety choosing you over worry choosing you over self